Good afternoon. I think we will get started. The next presentation is by Dr. Wendy Post, who is a associate professor of preventing, uh, professor of medicine and epidemiology at Johns Hopkins. And her discussion today will focus on what can we do to predict and prevent cardiovascular disease in HIV-infected patients. Wendy? John. Is this on? It's my pleasure to sorry, it's loud. <laughs> my pleasure to be here today, and it's always hard to be the first talk after lunch, so I'll try to keep you all awake. Um, I'm a preventive cardiologist, and what I'd like to do today is discuss how we can predict and prevent cardiovascular disease in HIV patients. I've had the um, pleasure of working with the multicenter AIDS cohort study that you've heard a lot about today on an ancillary study of cardiovascular disease and HIV, and therefore became interested in this topic. I'm just going to start briefly with a review of um, some of the background information, some of this I think you're familiar with. And as we've discussed today with the advent of um, heart, HIV has now become a chronic disease, and so we have to pay more attention to other causes of morbidity and mortality. And what this slide shows is that um, of non-HIV-related causes of death, cardiovascular disease is the leader, which is similar or the same as what's seen in the general population. So a number of studies have shown that patients with HIV are at increased risk for cardiovascular events compared to the general population. And it's been hypothesized that this potential increase in risk may be related to these three broad categories. It's known that patients with HIV have a high prevalence of traditional risk factors compared to the general population, and that these non-HIV traditional cardiovascular disease risk factors can be contributed, contributing to a potential increase in risk. And then as we've discussed today, there's the uh, association of HIV viral replication with an inflammatory response. And in recent years, we've known more and more about the um, associations between inflammation and risk for acute cardiovascular disease. And then, of course, treatment of HIV with antiretroviral therapy has its own associated metabolic side effects, which could lead to cardiovascular disease events. So this is a simplified schematic uh, diagram, which shows, um, let's see, which shows here potential contributors to atherosclerosis, including traditional risk factors such as diabetes, smoking, hypertension, and genetics, and that also... Um, uh, antiretroviral therapy can lead to increased risk through its effects on altered lipids and insulin resistance, and HIV infection itself leads to altered lipid effects. And then as we've discussed a lot today, HIV viral replication can lead to immune activation and inflammatory response, which can then contribute to atherosclerosis and endothelial um, dysfunction. So these are data from the MAC study, which looked longitudinally at men who seroconverted during the observational period. We all know that antiretroviral therapy is associated with changes in lipids. What's interesting about this study is that if you look at the HIV-positive 
antiretroviral therapy naive patients that they actually have a decrease in uh, total cholesterol, LDL, and HDL just from the acute infection or the chronic infection over seven years without any antiretroviral therapy. And then when antiretroviral therapy with heart is initiated, then there's almost what's considered a return to health. And so you might think that antiretroviral therapy is increasing LDL cholesterol and increasing total cholesterol, when in fact it actually is bringing it kind of back to the baseline, if not just slightly above the baseline before HIV infection. So this is just another way of looking at the effects of antiretroviral therapy of being, in a sense, a return to health and then overshooting it um, a little bit. And this study doesn't have triglycerides on it, but of course antiretroviral therapy can also um, be associated with elevations in triglycerides. And I'm not going to go over this slide in any detail, but you're all familiar with the fact that um, different classes of antiretroviral therapy have uh, varying effects on different components of the lipid profile, including triglycerides and total cholesterol. And Dr. Margulik showed this slide from the MAX, also showing that um, heart is associated with insulin resistance and an increased risk for diabetes. Um, and the DAD study, which is an observational database, showed that specifically the use of protease inhibitors appears to be associated with an increased risk for myocardial infarction. And that relative risk is estimated to be about 1.16 for each additional year of protease inhibitor use. And this slide shows the multivariate model that was used that um, showed this uh, relative risk of 1.16 for each additional year of exposure to protease inhibitors. But you can see the other traditional risk factors for cardiovascular disease, including advancing age, male sex, increased body mass index, a family history of coronary heart disease, current smoking and former smoking, and a previous cardiovascular event. So it's important to put in context the relative increase in risk with use of protease inhibitors versus traditional risk factors. And that's one of the main things I wanted to convey today is to not forget the importance of the traditional risk factors. And so we spent a lot of time today talking about a lot of interesting hypotheses for how HIV might lead to increased risk for some of these chronic diseases, but don't lose sight of the fact that we already know that smoking and prior heart disease and a family history and male gender advancing age, these are clear, very potent predictors of cardiovascular risk. And much of your attention, if not most of your attention, for trying to prevent cardiovascular disease in your HIV patients who you may be their primary care physician should be concentrating on controlling those risk factors and doing what I do in the general population for preventive cardiology. And then in this analysis, they additionally adjusted for factors that are associated with protease inhibitor use, including diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia, and showed the relative risk decrease somewhat, suggesting that some of the increased risk associated with protease inhibitors that was, that were, was observed may be mediated through these metabolic effects of protease inhibitors. But it's important to realize that not all studies show consistently this increased risk, and this study from uh, observational database from the VA um, showed that there was no increased risk for coronary heart disease with any specific class of antiretroviral therapy. So observational databases um, have their advantages and disadvantages, and sometimes there may be potential confounding influences that can't always be controlled for. So this is just a brief summary showing, again, some of the studies that have shown 
increased risk for coronary heart disease events or specifically with antiretroviral therapy, showing that many studies do show this increased risk, but um, that the risk is not uh, consistent. And it was mentioned in one of the previous talks that the DAD study found a potential association um, with abacavir use and coronary heart disease risk. And that was later potentially refuted by the abstract from the um, FDA that was presented at COI. And it may be, again, confounded by this channeling bias. Um, but the reason I wanted to show this slide was if you look here at predicted 10-year risk of coronary heart disease, the um, investigators stratified by low, moderate, or high um, Framingham risk. So the people who are generally at low risk for coronary heart disease using traditional risk factors, you know, whether they use a back of ear or not, their overall risk is very low. And it's these people who have a lot of traditional risk factors who really are at markedly increased risk for coronary heart disease events whether they take a back of ear or not. And so those are the people who you really want to pay a lot of attention to. And that's not to say that you're not going to see the occasional 30-year-old man who doesn't have any risk factors other than smoking, who has a myocardial infarction. It certainly does happen. It's just that the person who's most likely to have an event is the 65-year-old man with diabetes and a family history of hypertension and obesity and, you know, the usual things that we know predict risk for coronary heart disease. So what can we do to screen for risk? Well, I think we all hear a lot about um, coronary artery calcium scanning, and um, we use this for our research and also um, in our general preventive cardiology uh, practice. These are images from a non-contrast CT scan here showing um, a cross-section through the heart of someone without any subclinical atherosclerosis. And this patient has very severe calcium in the coronary arteries. Whenever there's calcium in the heart arteries, that means there's atherosclerosis. And studies have clearly shown that the more coronary calcium, the greater the risk for having an event a cardiovascular event during the follow-up period in people who do not have any symptoms, what we call subclinical um, disease. And the reason that subclinical disease is important is that atherosclerosis begins very early and can be detected prior to having an event. Most myocardial infarctions actually occur at a site that was previously less than 40% blocked with then superimposed plaque rupture and thrombus formation that leads to an acute coronary syndrome. So a stress test, although it can detect um, people who have angina and ischemia due to uh, stenosis, it cannot detect people who have a lot of subclinical atherosclerosis that don't have any flow-limiting disease. So subclinical disease measures potentially can be used to detect patients who um, are targets for aggressive primary prevention, who should get our most aggressive preventive strategies because they have evidence of underlying atherosclerosis. And more recently, um, with advanced technologies, we've been able to look at not just calcified plaque, but non-calcified plaque as well by injecting uh, contrast through the IV and doing what's called the CT angiogram. And these are the examples of images you get from a CT angiogram. Here's the left anterior descending coronary artery, and here's a cross-section through this segment of the left anterior descending coronary artery showing the contrast in the lumen. This is calcium here, and then this is all non-calcified plaque. Um, that wouldn't even be detected with a coronary calcium scan. So in the multicenter AIDS cohort study, Larry Kingsley and colleagues um, looked at non-contrast CT scans, coronary calcium, and compared the HIV-infected men with the HIV-negative men. 
And although, as we've discussed, a number of studies have shown that HIV is associated with an increased risk for cardiovascular events, actually found a similar prevalence of coronary calcium among HIV-positive and HIV-negative men after adjusting for cardiovascular disease risk factors. But among the men who had coronary calcium, if you look at the extent of coronary calcium, it actually was lower in those who were treated with heart um, than in the HIV-negative men, and we'll talk a little bit more about why that might be. Also, um, in collaboration with the WISE study, Robert Kaplan um, published a paper comparing carotid IMT in, and also the presence of discrete plaque in men and women with HIV infection and HIV-negative controls and didn't find actually any difference, unlike some other studies that have been done um, in other populations suggesting an increase in carotid IMT uh, related to HIV infection. But what they did find is that carotid artery plaque or discrete plaque, not just IMT, was more prevalent in the HIV-infected men who had a low CD4 count. And we'll talk more about those potential implications. So I don't necessarily recommend that you do a coronary calcium scan in your HIV-infected patients to try to determine whether to treat them because we don't yet know how um, non-calcified plaque might differ between those who are HIV-infected and HIV-negative, and we're trying to understand that more in our um, current cardiovascular disease ancillary study in the MAX where we're doing CT angiography and trying to understand potential differences between HIV-positive and HIV-negative men. So it's important when you look at observational studies or randomized trials that you remember um, important study design and interpretation issues. So it's important to look at the power of the study. Many studies have relatively small sample sizes and very few events because many of the people with HIV have a relatively young age and therefore don't get a lot of cardiovascular disease. Sometimes there's limited follow-up time, and it's also important to look not only at the point estimates but the confidence intervals, which if you have a small sample size or a small number of events, then your confidence in that point estimate or that relative risk may be quite uncertain due to the fact that there's not a lot of power. It's also important to make sure that there's an appropriate control group. So if you're looking at HIV positive versus negative people, well, how do the negative people compare in terms of their um, other potential lifestyle risk factors for cardiovascular disease? There could be differences in environmental factors and lifestyle risk factors that are not easy to measure. And so one of the advantages we have in the MAC study and also in the WISE is that the, uh, the population of cases and controls are very similar in terms of their lifestyle factors. Some of these um, confounding uh, variables can easily be measured and therefore can lead to residual confounding. Um, and that there might also be biases related to non-randomized prescribing of antiretroviral therapy, as was mentioned, as related to um, abacavir. There's the, some issues about accuracy of data. Some data comes from self-report, chart review, retrospective um, data is more uh, unreliable than prospective acquisition of data. And as I mentioned before about the difference between a risk factor and somebody who has a high baseline risk for cardiovascular disease versus a low baseline risk is you want to look at not just relative risk differences, but absolute risk differences. And when you're evaluating studies, you want to evaluate the consistency or lack of consistency of study results before forming any um, definitive statements about uh, risk. And when a study looks at multiple tests at the same time and then only reports one positive finding with a P of 0.05, you need to realize that there's a chance that that's just a false positive finding due to multiple testing. 
So in summary, observational studies suggest an increased risk for coronary heart disease associated with HIV infection and heart, but not all studies find consistent results with um, some limitations of study design. So what can we do to potentially decrease risk for cardiovascular disease? This is a study that was published by Jim Stein and colleagues where they randomized people to three different um, classes of antiretroviral therapy and measured endothelial function using flow-mediated brachial vasodilatation. And what they found is that the flow-mediated dilatation or measure of endothelial function actually improved in all three arms despite significant differences in lipids, suggesting that antiretroviral therapy may help to improve endothelial function. And at this point, you're all very familiar with the SMART study, which suggested that HIV viremia might contribute to cardiovascular risk. And so in this study, um, HIV-infected people were randomized to treatment interruption or drug sparing versus um, viral suppression or continuous treatment, and there was an increased risk for disease progression and total mortality. And the um, uh, events appeared to be mostly non-HIV related. And one of the findings was this finding of fatal or non-fatal cardiovascular disease events with the hazard ratio of 1.6, suggesting a 60% increase in risk. But again, look at the p-value, 0.05. It's just borderline significant with multiple tests that were performed and the hazard ratio, which is um, relatively wide. And if you look more specifically, you can see there were really only 79 events which contributed to this finding. And so clearly very provocative, provocative and inf interesting information, but again, um, you know, limited by relatively small sample sizes. And then if you add other diseases like peripheral vascular disease, congestive heart failure, or unobserved death, um, you get similar hazard ratios and a greater statistical significance. So one of the very interesting um, sub-analyses that was performed from the SMART study suggested that, uh, or showed, that inflammatory markers were strongly associated with total mortality. Um, these are data from what's called a nested case control study, where 85 cases of people who had died during follow-up were matched to controls, and compared the top quartile of these inflammatory markers and others with the uh, bottom quartile and found a very marked elevation in risk for mortality in those who were in the highest quartile for D-dimer with a 12-fold increase in uh, odds of um, dying and also quite high for interleukin-6, IL-6, and um, C-reactive protein of borderline significance. IL-6 and D-dimer were measured at baseline and also during follow-up. And in the drug conservation group, there was significant increases during that follow-up period, whereas those who were in the viral suppression group or continuous therapy had minimal increases in these inflammatory markers. And not unexpectedly, these increases in um, inflammatory markers were associated with the RNA levels. So this suggests that um, continuous therapy or more aggressive antiretroviral therapy, as been discussed by the previous speakers, may be associated with um, uh, suppression of inflammation and potentially um, you could extrapolate decreased risk for mortality, but, in, um, but that uh, the risk associated with cardiovascular disease is limited by a small sample size. So it's not exactly clear what the risk is that's associated with D-dimer, although preliminary studies suggest that the odds ratio was about two. There's also decreased risk of cardiovascular events seen in observational studies such as SMART associated with um, uh, viral suppression. So in this uh, figure, you can see that those who had a low um, uh, CD4 count 
Oh, this is, yeah, with virological suppression, those who had a low viral load also had a decreased risk for cardiovascular events. So the evidence supporting inflammation is that the SMART study showed unanticipated increase in cardiovascular disease event rates in the drug conservation versus viral suppression group. Inflammatory markers increased one month after treatment interruption in the SMART study. Um, and baseline levels of inflammatory markers strongly correlated to overall mortality. And in another observational database, higher HIV viral load also was associated with cardiovascular mortality. And these observational studies also suggested immune dysfunction as measured by low CD4 count is also associated risk, with risk for cardiovascular disease. So um, again, remember that the traditional risk factors also predict risk in cardiovas of cardiovascular disease and HIV. Here's data from an observational database called HOPS, again showing age, diabetes, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and low HDL, as in the general population, predict risk for cardiovascular disease. So I have a question here. In a patient with HIV, I calculate the Framingham risk score. So if you can all answer on all my patients, on some of my patients, or on none of my patients. Okay, so 42% none, 37% on some, and 21% on all. So that's about what I would predict. Um, we go to the next slide. So uh, one of the previous speakers also showed Framingham risk score, and it looks kind of complicated, but if you do it online and there's the link in the syllabus from the cases, it's actually pretty easy. You add up the points related to age, total cholesterol, HDL, systolic blood pressure, smoking, and then you look at the sum of the points, and then it gives you the 10-year risk of having a myocardial infarction or coronary heart disease death. And there are different um, data sets for women and for men. But we need to realize that in a young patient that this 10-year risk is somewhat limited because, you know, the average 30-year-old is not going to have an event during 10 years. So the newer guidelines might incorporate some of these data, which are um, ten, lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease event, which might be more useful um, when we're seeing uh, young patients. But it's important to remember that our most potent data about predicting risk for cardiovascular disease and preventing cardiovascular disease comes from using statins. And so I strongly encourage you to aim for these goals for LDL cholesterol in your patients. The highest risk patients, the LDL goal is less than 100 with an optional goal of less than 70. And in moderately high patients or moderate risk patients, you want a LDL cholesterol at least less than 100 with an optional goal of less than 100. And then your lower risk patients, you might accept an LDL cholesterol less than 160. So this schemata of CVD management suggests that you recommend that all patients uh, undergo lifestyle modification, control blood pressure and diabetes. In those who have high triglycerides or high cholesterol, you might consider switching antiretroviral therapy or adding a fibrate. But statins really should be the mainstay of therapy, making sure that you limit your statin use to those that don't interact with your antiretroviral therapy. And you might consider fibrates or niacin um, in those with low HDL. So to prevent a heart attack, take one aspirin a day, take it out for a jog, then take it to the gym, and then take it for a bike ride. So again, emphasizing the importance of, you know, lots of people just want to take a pill and prevent um, all their, you know, adverse uh, uh, potential outcomes, but it's really important to emphasize the importance of lifestyle modification. 
So we've talked about how elevations in D-dimer are strongly associated with mortality in HIV. So how many people think that patients with HIV should be treated with aspirin? Agree, disagree, only for a subset or not sure? Okay, so we have 55% only a subset and 26% agree. Um, so D-dimer is a marker of coagulation, and so there's um, considerable concern that patients with HIV are at increased risk for thrombosis, which of course could potentially lead to acute coronary syndromes and other um, adverse events such as venous thromboembolism. Um, I'm not sure we have enough data right now to say that all our patients should be treated with aspirin, although aspirin is over-the-counter, doesn't necessarily mean that it's benign, and there's uh, significant risks associated with aspirin use, including bleeding. Um, in the general population, we use aspirin to prevent cardiovascular disease in people who have um, at least two risk factors for cardiovascular disease or in women who are greater than the age of 65. And I think until we have more data, and it would be nice to have a clinical trial in HIV, I don't think we would necessarily say that all patients should be treated with aspirin, but certainly it's something that should be considered. So in patients with HIV, I check a CRP level. On all my patients, some or none. So if we can have everyone answer that one. Um, so some people do it in all, 26% on some and 63% on none. We're just going to go to the next question, and then we'll talk about CRP. All patients with HIV should be treated with statins. Agree, disagree, or not sure? So 9% say agree, but most people disagree. And so I wanted to tell you a little bit about CRP and statins in the general population. You probably have all heard about the Jupiter study. CRP in the general population is associated with risk for cardiovascular disease, but it's strongly associated with components of the metabolic syndrome, such as abdominal obesity and um, impaired glucose tolerance. Um, in Jupiter, the investigators were looking at people who had normal LDL, less than 130, but elevations in C-reactive protein, and randomized them to a potent statin, resuvastatin versus placebo, to see whether CRP can be used as a way to detect people who would potentially benefit from statin therapy. And what they found was a dramatic 44% reduction in the risk for MI, stroke, unstable angina revascularization, or cardiovascular death. And so some people have used this to suggest in the general population that those with high CRP should be treated with statins. And so what I'm throwing out there is the potential that statins, which is our most effective therapy, statins and aspirin are sort of our mainstay of therapy, could potentially be very effective ways to reduce risk for cardiovascular disease in the HIV population. I don't think we're yet ready to say you know, exactly who should get these um, therapies other than just following the general prevention guidelines that we use in uh, non-HIV infected patients because there just isn't enough data out there yet. But it certainly is um, a subject that could be investigated further with, you know, well-designed clinical trials to see whether there are specific indications beyond the general prevention guidelines. And I have this slide here just to remind me to emphasize again 
there's a very high prevalence of smoking in HIV patients and that, you know, we spend a lot of time talking about inflammation and how that's related to cardiovascular disease. But I showed you the relative risks. Smoking is by far the strongest risk factor for cardiovascular disease events, and I know it's very hard to get your patients to stop smoking, um, but please remember to um, emphasize the importance of smoking cessation, and as one of our previous speakers spoke about, showing the change in the Framingham risk when you stop smoking and referring to appropriate therapy and um, use of uh, medications that may help to aid um, smoking cessation. So in our Chikoroni Center for the Prevention of Heart Disease at Johns Hopkins, we follow the ABC approach to risk management. We use aspirin when indicated, blood pressure control, cholesterol management is key, and we use a lot of statins, cigarette smoking cessation, diabetes and pre-diabetes management with an emphasis on lifestyle modification and the importance of diet and exercise, and E, of course, for, um, for exercise. So the key points are that HIV infection may be an independent risk factor for cardiovascular disease, and certainly there are data to suggest that that is the case. HIV-infected persons carry a high burden of traditional risk factors and, again, emphasize the importance of doing what you can to control the traditional risk factors and using proven therapies from the general population and uh, trying to get um, studies to look at some of these proven therapies more um, specifically in HIV patients. Traditional CHD risk factors also are the major determinants of CHD risk in patients with HIV infection. Inflammatory and coagulation markers, especially IL-6 and D-dimer, are associated with increased mortality and possibly increased risk for cardiovascular disease in HIV. There is a potential role for HIV treatment to decrease, decrease cardiovascular risk with beneficial effects on immune dysfunction and inflammation, which appear to outweigh individual pro-atherogenic effects of antiretroviral therapy. In the absence of specific HIV randomized treatment trials, I recommend that you treat cardiovascular disease risk factors according to current national guidelines and emphasize the importance of smoking cessation among smokers. Further studies are needed to assess the efficacy of specific interventions to prevent coronary heart disease in HIV patients, since some of these therapies may have differing effects in patients with HIV. There is not enough data to support the use of inflammatory and coagulation markers or subclinical imaging for risk prediction routinely in clinical care of HIV patients, although clearly we're doing that in our research studies to try to understand it more. And there's no data yet to support routine use of aspirin or statins in all HIV patients beyond national guidelines. Thank you very much. Thank you, Wendy. Obviously, just because we're treating HIV-infected patients, we shouldn't forget to be good interns. Absolutely. <laughs> Should the goal of, uh, L, in terms of LDL level, should it be different in HIV-infected patients? So that's a very provocative question, and I guess you could tell by my conservative summary that I don't necessarily recommend um, changing the treatment in HIV until we have 
more definitive data. Um, so those general guidelines are what would suggest we follow. Some have suggested that HIV be considered a cardiovascular disease risk equivalent. I don't think the data is strong enough to say that at this point. And so I would recommend following the um, guidelines, which of course are guidelines and can be, you know, used within some flexibility for an individual patient. And who should take aspirin? Anybody over 50, over 60? <laughs> so in the general population, the women's health study showed that um, women who were randomized to aspirin versus placebo had a reduction in risk only if they were above the age of 65. The overall study was negative, and it was just that subgroup who benefited. Whereas the physician's health study, which was done years ago, which was all in men, um, showed that uh, that men benefited from aspirin in that there was a reduction in myocardial infarction. The interesting thing is that in women, aspirin reduced the risk for stroke in the overall study, but did not reduce the risk for MI unless the women were above the age of 65. So it's a little bit confusing, and how that would differ in HIV, we don't really know because there hasn't been a clinical trial. Um, but in, in my opinion, I would give aspirin to those who have at least two traditional cardiovascular disease risk factors, especially somebody who has diabetes, um, older people, especially women above the age of 65. Um, greater than 50, you know, isn't necessarily what the cutoff should be, um, especially for women. So it's really just a matter of um, counting the number of traditional risk factors to determine who should be treated with aspirin until there's more data. The thing that disturbs me is that I can't change the biggest risk factor, which is my age. Or your, <laughs> or your gender. Or your gender. Well, I guess you could change yeah. that, but. <laughs> Question is calcium. What, what should we do about calcium supplementation? So it was suggested earlier that maybe calcium supplementation is associated with increased risk. I don't think the data is really strong enough yet to say that. What leads to coronary calcium is not calcium ingestion. The calcium is part of the healing process. It's like fibrosis. And so it's not your intake of calcium that leads to calcium in the coronary arteries because there's a homeostatic mechanism which um, keeps the calcium, uh, you know, uh, level in your blood. So I, I don't think that there's any reason not to take um, calcium supplements if you're at risk for cardiovascular disease. Anybody wish to come to the microphone to ask a question? solved all their problems. <laughs> okay, Thank great. you very much. Thank Wendy. you.